Well, um, sometimes things come along, don't they, in, in our lives that threaten to uh, overwhelm us. Um, you know, we, we understand, if, if, we're, if we're Christians anyway, we, we understand, don't we, that we're not in heaven yet. Um, you know, we're living in the, in the gap, as it were, between uh, the promises of God in his word, promises that are fulfilled in the person and work of, of Jesus, um, uh, those promises being um, uh, uh, yeah, uh, fulfilled in, in his word, fulfilled in Jesus. Um, and, but the final fulfillment of those promises in the work of Jesus are, are only fully realized, aren't they, when, when Christ returns and makes all things new. So, so we understand that. We know we're not there yet. But sometimes stuff comes along that makes that gap, you know, that gap between the, the now and the not yet, or that gap between the, the promise and the reality, just feel huge, don't they? Maybe, uh, maybe it's something like a crippling health diagnosis or or maybe it's the tragic loss of a spouse or a child or maybe it's the collapse of your career or maybe it's the breakup of your marriage or any number actually of of other overwhelming circumstances that that make your life feel as though it's crumbling around you and and those kind of times can often lead to a, a crisis of faith can't they as as we reflect maybe on the difference between what God has promised and the reality of what my life is actually like at the moment. And we think, is this, is this really what life should be like for me as a Christian? Because it's not how I imagined it would be. Uh, I, I just can't make sense of this, this big gap between the promises of God's word and the realities of my life. Um, so where can we go? You know, where can we go to have our strength, our faith strengthened when we feel like we're having a crisis of faith? Well, the plan is that we're going to have a look at the life of Abraham together because uh, Abraham, uh, maybe more than anyone else in, in the Old Testament, had to learn what it means to live by faith in the face of overwhelming circumstances. And, and in these chapters of Genesis that we're going to look at uh, over the next few weeks that, that record his life, we'll see, uh, I think, the faith and the failures of a man who, who just like us, uh, lived in this gap between God's promises and, and the tough realities of, of life. But of course, uh, Abraham is more than just an example for us to learn from, isn't he? From, from either our faith or our, either his faith or, or failures. But, but as we'll see, Abraham is constantly pointing us forward to Christ, And and that's because the real thing that is going to strengthen our faith in the promises of God is not so much to understand, you know, what would Abraham do, but actually it's rather to understand what has Jesus already done. Now, if you know the book of Genesis a bit, you'll realize that we're we're joining the book in uh, in chapter 12 here at a kind of, it's a pivotal moment in the book. The first 11 chapters of Genesis have told us all about the world that we live in, whose world it is and what life should be like in it. In in chapters 1 and 2, this life of unspoiled relationship with the God who made it. Um, The crushing impact of our sin in in chapter 3, which has spoiled our world and broken that relationship. Saw a bit in the Bible bite about that, didn't we? And, and then in, in chapters 4 to 11, how that sin grows and spreads. 
Um, and now, from chapter 12 onwards, we start to get the, the unfolding story of what God is doing to put right what our sin messed up. And it starts with this, uh, this threefold promise that's given to Abraham in chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Have a look at it. You'll see it's a promise of, of land, uh, of people, and of blessing. So uh, in verse 2 of chapter 12, uh, God says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And sorry, verse 1, which I should have read as well. Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to the land that I will show you. So you've got land there, haven't you? And people and blessing. You see, to to the God who cast his people out from their land, the the Garden of Eden, because of their sin, they're going to be given a new land. Uh, From the humanity that God had to scatter at Babel because of their opposition to him, well, God's going to make a new people. Uh, built around Abraham and his descendants of people who will live in his land and, and under his loving rule. And, and because when you live under God's rule, you enjoy his blessing, well, God promises to bless them as well. So you've got this threefold promise of land and people and blessing, which makes up what will come to be known in the New Testament as the kingdom of God, which, which finds its, its final, its ultimate fulfillment, of course, in the, in the fully restored uh, a kingdom that the book of Revelation describes, where, where God's people, his, his church from every nation, are, are in God's land, the, the new creation, heaven, and they're under his rule and so enjoy his blessing forever. That's where the, uh, the grand unfolding story that starts here is, is all finally ultimately heading. And of course, being part of that kingdom through being rescued from the sin that has broken this world uh, through the person and work of the Lord Jesus is what the Bible calls salvation. And and it's here in Genesis 12 that this this unfolding plan of salvation kind of begins with with, uh, not only promises to Abram, but Abram's response to God's promises as well. Did you notice that? God didn't only make a threefold promise to Abram, did he? But he also gave him a call to go. In verse 1, go from your country, your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. That's a call to to go, isn't it? And it's a call which Abram, uh, verse 4 obeyed. Do you see? In other words, Abram obeyed what God said because he trusted what God promised. And and it's Abram's trust or or his faith in God's promises that these next chapters of Genesis are all about. And friends, that's what biblical faith is, isn't it? It's trusting in the promises of God. So it's not blind faith. It's not faith in a kind of an unknown God or a mysterious uh, God. Um, that, you know, we're, that we're just called to trust uh, even though we don't know who he is. It's not that. No, what God calls us to exercise trust in is his word which comes to us in the form of promises. So Christians are people who have informed trust in the firm promises of God's word. And, and in these three chapters, uh, which we're going to take a kind of attempt to take a high-level pass over this morning, 12 to 14 we're going to see something of life under the promise. Life as we await the fulfilment of God's promise, whilst living now uh, 
in the tough realities of life, life in the gap between the promise and its fulfillment. Because that's where we are, isn't it? That's the tension of the Christian life. We live it looking forward to the fulfillment of the promise, but it's not ours yet. It's a promise. It's to come. So let's try and have a look at some examples of this tension in the life of Abram. What does it mean to live by faith as we live life under the promise? Well, first of all, uh, I want to show you faith tested in, in chapter 12, verses 10 through to chapter 13, verse 13. Because Abram's trust in God comes under test in this passage, doesn't it? You can see the first of the tests in uh, verses 10 to 20 of chapter 12, where, where Abram has trusted God's promise and he's left his home in Haran, back in verse 4. He set out with Sarai, his wife, and with Lot, his nephew, for the land of Canaan. So, so this, this threefold promise in, in verses 1 to 3, of course it's ultimately a, a promise to restore the whole of creation by reversing the effects of sin, but initially it involves the land of Canaan, doesn't it? A land that the Bible will later describe as a land flowing with milk and honey. In other words, a land of plenty, a, a land of abundance. So Abram sets off for this land of abundance, the land of Canaan, where where he walks through it from north to south. He builds altars to God as he goes to to give an expression of his trust that God will fulfill his promise and and give him the land. But then look what happens in verse 10. Because there's a famine in the land, isn't there? So, So this immediately puts Abram's trust in God's promises to the test doesn't it? And it's a, it's a test of hardship, isn't it? It's a test of adversity. You know, something bad comes along. So, so he's travelled to this land, yes, trusting God's promise, but he's been expecting a land of plenty where instead he's found scarcity. And friends, um, we don't like it when we don't get what we want, do we? <laughs> you know, when, when what materialises isn't what we were expecting. And and those kind of circumstances can often cause us to doubt God's promises. And and just notice how Abram reacted in verse 10. He took off for Egypt. And he went and lived there for a while because the famine was severe. You see that? So, So remember, God hasn't told him to go to Egypt. God's told him to go to Canaan. And he's promised him land and blessing there. But when the issue of famine came along, it was enough to cast doubt in Abram's mind about God's ability to fulfill his promise. How's he going to do that? There's a famine going on. And so he takes matters into his own hands instead and leaves Canaan and heads for Egypt. But look, it gets even worse than that because this decision to go to Egypt leads to an even poorer uh, decision in verse 11. Have a look at verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a beautiful, uh, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they'll let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. So, so what, what Abram has asked Sarah to say here is not entirely inaccurate, actually, because uh, chapter 20 will make clear she is indeed his half-sister as well as his wife. But actually, just because something is half-true doesn't, doesn't mean it's not wrong. 
And, and the writer here is clear that what Abram and Sarah have agreed to do is, is, is wrong. But you can see what's happened, can't you? Faith has given way to fear, hasn't it? That their fear of what they imagine the Egyptians might do has caused them to fail to trust God's promise and, and so conclude that it's, it's better for her to be defiled so that he can save his skin. And friends, do you, do you see the mess that's caused when we stop trusting God and his promises and we start making up our own solutions instead? It's really tragic, actually, isn't it? And all because he didn't want things to go badly for him, he wanted things to go well for him. Verse 13, say you are my sister so that things may go well with me because of you. (laughs) Now, at one level, of course, they did go well, didn't they? Verse 16, uh, for her sake Pharaoh dealt well with Abraham. So, you know, he might have lost his wife, but he's been made a wealthy man. (laughs) But at what cost? Well, at the cost of his wife's purity, for a start, because this is a a gross moral failure on Abram's part, isn't it? But although Abram is guilty of of moral failure here, that's not the writer's focus, is it? We we mustn't simply uh, moralise the story. Uh, Remember that these chapters are about how uh, Abram is living in the light of God's promises, and, and what we see uh, is that his, his fear of man has brought about a failure of trust in God's promises. Do, do you see? Resulting in the fact that he, he takes the wife whom God would need to give him the son to build his nation and he makes her available to be taken by somebody else. Which of course she is, look, verse 15, by Pharaoh himself. In other words, this is a failure of faith that has resulted in a failure of living, isn't it? And and the two things very often go together, friends, don't they? Obeying God comes out of trusting God. And if Abram had trusted God, then he probably wouldn't have left Canaan for Egypt, and he certainly wouldn't have lied about Sarai being his wife. Do, do, Do you see what's happened? You know, a time of hardship, a time of adversity has come along which has tested faith, and in Abram's case, like with ours so often, faith has failed. His faith has failed. But look at the next test of faith in in this passage, and and notice that although Abram's faith did fail, it it didn't fail completely. And, and, And the next test of faith, it comes in chapter 13, verses 1 to 4. So how is he going to handle this failure of faith now? You see, even, even Pharaoh knows that Abram has failed here, doesn't he? His, his sin has caused Pharaoh to commit adultery. It's brought sickness to Pharaoh's household, verse 17. And, and when Pharaoh finds out the cause of this, he gives Abram this kind of stinging rebuke in verses 18 and 19 before giving him back his wife and, and sending them away. So what does Abram do now in the light of his failure and its consequences? Well, if you look at verses 1 to 4 of chapter 13, you'll see that he he goes back to square one, actually, doesn't he? He turns back to Canaan. He actually retraces his steps. 
And what does he do there? Verse 4. He called on the name of the Lord. So this is repentance turning and trust, isn't it? He's turned away from all the mess that he's made in, in Egypt. He's come back to God and he's called on him. So he's, he's reaffirmed his trust in God's promises. And friends, that's the right response, isn't it, to a failure of faith. Repentance and renewed trust. Throwing ourselves on the mercy of God and reassuring ourselves of the promise of God. Now for Abram, that meant coming back to the altar at Bethel. Uh, If you can see that there, Bethel means house of the Lord. For us, of course, living this side of the cross, it means coming back to the the altar of Calvary, doesn't it? Back to the cross, where where God never tires of showing us the forgiveness and, and the acceptance that is ours because of the Lord Jesus. And friends, a point I'd love us to get here this morning is that how we respond to a failure of faith is itself a test of faith. For, for example, um, just, just imagine that you've, you've given in to some temptation yet again. Uh, one friend I had got so sick of the fact that he kept failing to live as he knew he should that he gave up the Christian life altogether. And it is hard, isn't it? It's hard living with the tension between how God has called us to live and how we often end up living as, as we struggle and we often give in to temptation. So, so we, get, we get fed up, don't we, with the constant failure and the frustratingly slow progress. Um, so, so fed up that some people simply give up on the Christian life altogether. But the person with faith doesn't respond to failure by giving up the Christian life. Although we will fail, we will not fail completely, but rather will respond to failure with repentance and renewed trust in God's promises. And that's what Abram does here, isn't it? And, and having done that, look, verses 5 to 13, he is immediately faced with a third test. So we've had this test of dealing with difficulty, we've had a test of dealing with failure, but now we've got this test of dealing with with affluence, actually. Because although Abram has been unfaithful to God in, in Egypt, God had still been faithful to him. And he's enabled Abram to leave Egypt, a very affluent man. Verse 2, rich in livestock and silver and, and gold. And so, as he returned to God, returned to Canaan, to the Negeb, he did so a wealthy man. As also, notice, did his nephew Lot, who, who returned with him, verse 5. Such that, verse 6, the land couldn't support the two of them dwelling together. It's like they used to say in the Westerns, like the black and white Westerns when I was a kid, this town ain't big enough for the both of us. You know, that is, It's kind of like that. That's the kind of vibe going on here, isn't it? Because of their their affluence, the sheer volume of their herds constituted a threat to their their wealth. There wasn't enough space, not enough grass, and and so on. And it was causing strife, verse 7, between the the herdsmen of of Abram and and Lot. So there's the problem. And the test is, how is Abram going to respond to this threat to his newfound affluence? 
Well, well, notice the writer brings out the contrast between how Abram deals with the problem and and how Lot deals with it. Have a look at verse 8 and 9 of chapter 13. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we're kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I'll go to the right, or if you take the right hand, I will go to the left. Do you see what he's doing? He's offering Lot, isn't he? The, the prime pick of the land. Which reveals the fact, I, I think, that Abram has learned his lesson from the Egypt fiasco, hasn't he? You know, Abram could have kind of pulled rank on Lot, couldn't he? Could have said, well, you know, I'm the head of the house. I should get the first choice of where to go. But he doesn't do that, does he? He's, he's gracious, he's generous, he's, he's self-sacrificing. Contrast that with Lot, verse 10, who, who uses Abram's generosity to his advantage. So he, he casts his eye over the, uh, the lovely, lush Jordan Valley, and he says, well, I'll go there. <laughs> Which, friends, is very much the view of the world, isn't it? You know, it's the kind of self-serving attitude that's going to get you into the final of The Apprentice or something, isn't it? You know, what a great little entrepreneur that lot is, eh? And and notice in that verse that that Lot acts on the basis of what he sees. He's living by sight, isn't he? And because he's living by sight, he picks on the basis of what looks best to him, which, of course, is this utopian Jordan Valley, the sort of the fertile paradise, which reminds him of what the Garden of Eden must have been like. Ah, yeah, that's the spot for me. Give me the good life. Give it to me now. (laughs) But the writer hints to us here, I think, that this is maybe just a, a bit of shallow reasoning on Lot's part. Notice the little mention of Sodom and Gomorrah there in verse 10. And, and how having gone their separate ways, Lot pitches his tent down near Sodom, where the men were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Do you, do you see the point there, friends? What, what enables Abram to give up what appears to be the best land is that Abram wasn't looking at the land at all. Unlike Lot... Abram's not approaching this issue on the basis of sight, but on the basis of faith. Because now, you see, after Egypt, his gaze has been refocused on the promise of God, that God will do what he promises to do. He understands that his future is in God's hands and it's secure there. So he doesn't need to grab the best for himself. He can afford to be generous and and, and self-sacrificial. And friends, this is really the test of dealing with affluence, isn't it? It's being able to freely and cheerfully give it away. Because our trust is in the promise of God and and not in our our money, in our wealth. You see, friends, that the, the danger of affluence is that it causes us to love so much what affluence gives us that our vision of what we have in Christ just starts to fade. We start to love our money and our stuff more. We start to find our security in that and our contentment in that and our trust in that. And, and so less and less and less in the promise of God's word. And that's what happened to Lot here, isn't it? 
And, and if you know the story, you'll know where it's heading. Lot might think that his choice of land is going to make it like living in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> but that's not what Sodom is like, is it? As we'll find out. Verse 13, living by sight and not by faith in the promises of God is going to lead to disaster for Lot, not paradise, as we'll find out. But as now we're kind of moved away from Lot, back to Abram, we're moved away from seeing faith tested and we're shown faith strengthened. Notice in verse 14 that what happens after they've parted, they've gone their separate ways, is that God speaks to Abram. Now, he doesn't, God doesn't do this much in these chapters. Most of the time, Abram just has to face these challenges and these decisions on the basis of God's promises, just like we do. But here, God sort of speaks his word to him more directly, and it strengthens Abram's faith. Have a look at verse 14. Uh, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northwards and southwards and eastwards and westwards, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Do you see? God's God's reiterating his promise to him, isn't he? But look at how he does it. Abram begins with believing by faith in the promises of God, but now God lets him see it with his eyes as well, doesn't he? Do you notice that? Lift up your eyes and look, he says, verse 14. Look north and south and, and east and west and see all the land that I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Do you see, when, when Abram had made a decision on sight, based on sight rather than on trusting God's promises, it had taken him to Egypt and it had caused him to give up his wife and all the disaster that followed, a, a lesson he'd learned. And and when Lot had made a decision based on sight rather than by trust in God's promises, it led him to Sodom and and the disaster that it will take a long time for him to recover from. But when Abram, lesson learned, lives by faith in God's promises and not by sight, well, God shows him what he's just chosen by faith And he gives him even more detail about how abundant these promises are going to be. Doesn't he? All the land you can see, given to you and your offspring forever. Offspring as numerous as the dust of the earth. In other words, just see what you've got coming, Abram. See how trusting in God's promises will bless you. Do you see? God God just takes him deeper into the promises that he has for him. And, and, and notice the effect that has on Abram's faith, verse, uh, verse 18. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Do you see, Abram's faith is strengthened such that he continues on. God has said to him to walk through the land. God's going to give to him, and so that's what he does. Faith strengthened. Now let me just give you the quickest of skims over chapter 14, which we we didn't read uh, some of, but uh, I just want us to notice. It's all about this kind of uh, north-south war, 
there's, there's four powerful kings in the north go to war against five less powerful kings from the south, which include the, the city-state of Sodom, which of course is just where Lot has moved to. Good move, eh? Um, the problem is that the kings of the north have been extracting money from the kings in the south, and the kings in the south have got fed up with this and decided to stop paying. And so the kings in the north head south under the leadership of this king, uh, Kedalayama, and, and, and they head south to clobber them, really. And, and in doing so, uh, he carts off a load of people, including Lot, verse 12, along with all of his possessions. But notice again that although Lot has been unfaithful to God, he's lived by sight instead of by faith in God's promises, God is not unfaithful to him. No, he he mobilizes Abram and his his little private army, verse 14, his little private army of 318 men who who pursue the much bigger armies of Kedalaima and and defeat them. And, And Lot is brought back with all his possessions and his people, verse 16. So is it, a, is it a very nice little happy ending then? Well, not quite. Because look, we're introduced in verse 18 to the mysterious Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God most high. And he's kind of a bit incongruous in here, isn't he? You, you read that verse and you think, who's he? You know, what, what's he doing here in this story? And if you recognize the name Melchizedek, it's more likely you've read about him in the book of Hebrews rather than here, I'd suggest, where where he's presented as a type of Christ. He's, he's He's an intriguing figure. We've not really got much time to say a lot about him this morning. But notice what he does, which is that he brings out bread and wine for him, verse 18, and then he speaks the word of God to him. Have a look at verse 19 of chapter 14. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. See the use of the word blessed there. He's actually restating, partially uh, at least, the promise of chapter 12, isn't he? He's saying that it's God's promise to bless you, Abram. That's the reason for your victory here with your little army against that big army. It's because God's promise is to bless you. This this incredible defeat of these, these four kings, it's just a little taste of the blessing of God that he's promised you. Do you see? Melchizedek here is sent to speak God's word to Abram so that he will understand rightly what's just happened to him. This amazing victory. He's experienced God's hand of blessing on him, of course, but experience isn't enough, is it? Faith mustn't be based on experience alone because experience can be interpreted wrongly, can't it? So what God does through Melchizedek here is he speaks his word to Abram so that Abram will understand what's happened to him properly, rightly. That this is God fulfilling his promise to bring blessing to Abram. And and this is to, again, strengthen Abram's faith in God's promise. God's saying to him, this is why I've blessed you here, Abram. It's because I promised to do so and I mean what I say. Whether, Whether it's through adversity or trial, whether it's through failure, whether it's through affluence... Keep your eye on the promise. Trust me. 
believe that I will do what I say and so walk by faith and not by sight. And and having heard the word of God through Melchizedek, we can see how, how Abram's faith is strengthened. You can see it supremely in verse 22. Because although Melchizedek, the the king of Salem, has blessed Abram, yet the king of Sodom tries to strike a bargain with him. But just look at Abram's kind of gracious reply. Here's the sign of how how Abram's faith has grown uh, over these events. Have a quick peek at verse 22. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor, of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I'll take nothing, he says. Do you see that the king of Sodom is is offering him all the plunder as long as he lets him have the people? And Abram says, no, you can have the people and the plunder. I won't take a penny from you. See, God's promised it all to him anyway, hasn't he? So Abram's not going to try and grasp it. He's content to just trust in God's promise and allow God to give it in the fullness of time. Do do, do you see the point, friends, how how Abram's faith has been strengthened as God has worked through these tests of faith to speak his word to him? But look, as we just close and, and... try and apply these chapters to ourselves we 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 might be tempted to think well you know you're you're talking about Abram here Steve you know the hero of the faith of course he's going to trust in God's promises but I'm not him and of course that's true isn't it we're we're not Abram but friends it's much easier for us than it was for him to trust in the promise of God It's easier for us than for him. And and the reason for that is kind of hinted at in this person of Melchizedek, this this strange figure who who appears and then disappears. He's someone who worships the God of Abram, verse 18, and who is both a king, the king of Salem, that will become Jerusalem, and he's a priest of the God Most High. He's one greater than Abraham. Hence, Abram gives him a gift in verse 20. And and he enters the story out of nowhere and he disappears again, just as mysteriously, never to appear again in the Old Testament. A mysterious figure to Abram, but not a mysterious figure to us. Because the writer to Hebrews introduces us to him in Hebrews 7 as a type of Christ, someone to point us to what Christ will do. You see, even, even back here in the first book of the Bible, we're being pointed forward to Christ. Here's what Hebrews 7 says about this Melchizedek. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. King of righteousness, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Isn't isn't that amazing? This, This mysterious Melchizedek is pointing us to Jesus. And friends, this is why it's easier for us than it was for Abram to trust in the promise of God in his word. It's because we can see the full picture. 
about how this, this threefold promise of Genesis 12 finds its completion in him, bringing righteousness and peace through his work on the cross. So, friends, therefore, what assurance we can have that God will complete what he started and he will bring about the ultimate fulfillment of his promise. The, the one that we see in that awesome picture of, of uh, Revelation 12, of God's people, his church, in God's land, heaven, under his rule and his blessing forever. Do, do, do you see, friends? What Abram could only glimpse, we can see in, in all its fullness. How many more reasons to trust God we have. But friends, still there's this tension, isn't there? As we live in the gap between the promise and its final fulfilment. And, and that means, friends, that just like Abram, we're going to face situations that test our trust in God's promises. They might come through times of dealing with difficulty, loss. Maybe dealing with failure, temptation, dealing with affluence. And, and as with Abram, how we deal with those times will be a mark of our, our spiritual maturity. So how are we living life under the promise? How does our trust in God's promises fare when the tough realities of life come our way? Are we seeing signs of strengthening faith as the years roll by? Well, the example of Abram shows us clearly here, doesn't it? That for our trust in God's promises to grow and become stronger... We need to keep hearing God's word as he keeps taking us deeper and deeper into his promises as we, as we read it and study it. Faith comes to us, Romans 10.17 tells us, by hearing the word of Christ. And it shouldn't surprise us that faith is strengthened in us as we hear the word of Christ as well. And, and so God, friends, graciously uses the, the ups and the downs of the Christian life to strengthen our faith as through those times we keep coming back to the promises of his word so that he can keep showing us those precious promises, showing us that he can be trusted, that he will do what he's promised to do. Friends, it's why we need his word and even more so in times of testing so that our trust in him, our confidence in him and his promises can be strengthened again and again in us. Friends, let's pray, shall we? And we'll ask God to help us uh, keep coming back to his word so that our faith would be strengthened. Let's pray together. Father, with the, um, with the message of these chapters ringing in our ears, um, our, our prayer for one another and, and for ourselves is that through uh, whatever we face in, in this most difficult of years, and, and indeed in the Christian life as a whole, we would stand on the sure and certain promises of your word, that we might be strengthened to increasingly live by faith in your promises and not by sight. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.